0: Well, it's good to um, to say good morning to you again as we come to the Word of God and our exposition of the Word of God. Uh, we're going to be continuing uh, the passage that we were looking at last week, uh, so we'll be re- reading that passage once again, Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Paul writing these words to Timothy says, you, however... while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out and profitable for teaching pretty proof, for correction, for training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, it is our prayer that uh, our listening to Scripture, learning from Scripture and being changed and motivated by Scripture would uh, lead to our essential good, both in a te- temporal sense, but also in an eternal sense. And that the things that you do with us through scripture would continue to enable us to live in such a way that whether we eat or drink, we would do all to your glory. Remind us again that uh, we as individual Christians are really part of the body of Christ and that the body of Christ, the church, has its purpose in this world, which Paul has described earlier to Timothy as the church, the household of God the pillar and buttress of the truth. So remind us that we don't simply learn the word of God for our own sake, but we learn your word that we might be salt, salt of the earth, light, light of the world, that we might live in such a way that uh, our good works would be known not by virtue signaling But our good works will be known by genuinely good things that we would do that would build up our neighbor, show kindness and concern in such a manner that even they who don't know you might give glory to our Heavenly Father. This is what we would pray. Enable us to be faithful servants of the living God in this world, especially during these times. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I shared something that I heard from a, a non-Christian friend of mine during my college days. Uh, he was visiting. We were walking along the campus, and uh, we must have had some conversation about rather deep things because this is what he said to me. If you don't have uh, principles that you're willing to die for, then you will never have convictions that you'll live by. And that struck me then it continues to strike me every time I think about it, that there's something so essentially Christian about that perspective. That is to say, when we read what the Bible has to say about having principles and convictions, which we ought to be able to live by, we also have to recognize that if we don't have such principles that we would be willing to lay down our life for, then we really don't have principles we're ultimately going to live by. Because when push comes to shove, if we don't have such valuable principles, those principles will fold, and we'll just simply cave in, and we won't show the integrity that those principles are supposed to supply. So I think about that because of the day in which we live. Uh, we're living in such a time that essential convictions which you and I have as Christians are, are actually uh, proving to be a point of hostility between Christians and the world. I, I think about this. We think about those who Uh, are in the government world, or those who might be in the academic world, those who might be in the business and professional world, that when they simply acknowledge the essential Christian convictions that have been part of the public record for the last 2,000 years, in our culture today, there's a sudden pushback and a sudden hostility as though somehow we're bringing something new to the table and that what we're bringing as new to the table is somehow uh, essentially damaging to other human beings. And so we look at this, we think about this. uh, The the Bible's 2,000 year old, really 4,000 years old. From the beginning of creation, the Bible's view about marriage. If that's presented today, there's pushback, keen pushback on it. Or we think about the place of human sexuality, designed to be within covenant of marriage. Or we think about the biological reality of two genders, something never questioned until until this generation. Or we think about the sacredness of life in the womb, that which distinguished the early Christians from the Greco-Romans. Um, we think about the biblical definition of justice, even. Uh, all of these things that we might hold on to today uh, have become and are evident in the social media world, but they're also evident in the political world. They're evident on academic campuses. All of these things have become a great point of contention so that the biblical narrative uh, critiqued by the uh, other narrative is seen as that which is harmful or injurious uh, to other people, to human life. Now, I'm saying that not to give a pushback against the culture. I'm saying that because there's something about the narrative of today that ought not to surprise us at all. Uh, It shouldn't surprise us because we ought to recognize, I'm surprised when Christians don't see this, we ought to recognize that we live in the post-Christian world. We we deeply live in a post-Christian world. We no longer live in that Christian era that actually broke into the Roman Empire during the fourth century when Christianity was no longer illegal, and then when Christianity became the, the legally endorsed uh, faith of the Roman Empire, we no longer live in that era that was inaugurated in the fourth century, and which lasted, really, all the way up into uh, the time of what has been called the Age of the Enlightenment. And in the United States, this Christian era in which Christian values and Christian thinking lasted all the way into the 1960s, when Uh, by certain court decisions, by certain things that were happening within the public arena, we can designate the transition between the Christian understanding of things to the secular and non-Christian understanding of things, which we have experienced for the past half century. We ought not to be surprised when we see the civilization that we live in today not only renouncing the Christian understanding of things, but then going further and denouncing the Christian understanding of things, because we need to recognize that what happened in terms of Christian ideas in forming and even forming Western civilization was a very, very slow process. In some sense, it reached its highest point in the Declaration of Independence in 1776, because for the first time ever in the history, not just of Western civilization. In the history of every civilization, an official political document stated that all men are created equal, first of all, and then secondly, that all human beings created equal by their creator are endowed with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It took 1,800 years of the working of the Christian faith to bring Western civilization to that official point. And it's a point that was held on to, but wrestled with and struggled with, and never fully and successfully implemented, even within the country in which it was first announced. It's something that we should never take away from in terms of its historic achievement, but we need to understand that that was in many ways the apex of Christian thought coming into Western civilization. But since then, and during our own experience here in the United States, we have seen uh, every way in which Western civilization has increasingly moved away from the ideals of the Christian faith, these, these truths about human beings, uh, these, this heritage that we received, such that in Europe first and now in the United States, we live in a post-Christian era. I'm calling your attention to that this morning because the verses we're going to be looking at as we continue last Sunday's message uh, pick up on this conflict with the world, which is evident uh, for us who are Christians, who have a biblical understanding of life. We see this conflict with the world. But then secondly, we also need to see that there is comfort and confidence in the Scripture for us who would base our life upon what the Bible has to say. We're continuing with this major thought that we introduced last week. In which we were saying essentially this, that the Apostle Paul is presented to us in Scripture as a godly role model. Now, let me just say something about that before we continue. A godly role model. Uh, not every Christian uh, was born into a family in which the mom or the dad or both of them actually gave us godly models of life. Uh, many of us were bereft in our upbringing of having someone in our life that was genuinely an example of what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. And of course, that's been true all throughout Christian history. Not everyone uh, has the opportunity or the privilege of having someone who's so formative in his or her life that lives the life of a genuine Christian. But in reading scripture, uh, we do see that the apostle Paul himself was set forth by God, by the word of God, to be such a godly role model. And what we have in uh, 1 Timothy and then 2 Timothy is to see that dynamic relationship between the godly role model, who is the apostle Paul, and then with his uh, disciple and spiritual son, Timothy. And there's so many lessons about their relationship that would apply to us as Christians. And of course, what we were saying last week is that in this particular passage from verses 10 through 17, we have important elements of what that godly role model relationship is like. Uh, because Paul is that one who followed Christ so closely, he best fits that godly role model Pattern to a superlative, a superlative degree, and for this reason, uh, Paul is himself the one that we should seek to emulate. Paul is himself the one who has uh, given to us an example of what this is truly like. Paul himself is that godly example that not only Timothy followed, but that we as Christians should follow as well. So last week, well, really out of that, there were four main ideas. There were the idea that there's a great contrast between um, Timothy and his following uh, the Apostle Paul and those others that Paul had just spoken about, the the ungodly pretenders, the wolfish shepherds, those who were leading people astray, a great contrast. Timothy was nothing like them because of his following Paul closely. But we also looked at the core characteristics of the Christian life. Now the Apostle Paul laid out those things that he said, Timothy, you have followed my way of life. You have followed my faith, you follow my love, those core characteristics. But today I want us to look at two other things about the godly model that the Apostle Paul tells us that we're going to face. Uh, We're going to be encountering conflict, a great conflict with the world. But even though we have that great conflict with the world, there is both comfort and confidence in the scriptures that we also would be able to possess and find and discover as we pursue a godly life following the godly model. So I want to begin then with verses uh, 11, 12, and 13, this idea of the conflict with the world. Basically, Paul is telling us, if you follow the godly model, you will have conflict with the world. And this conflict shows up in this particular set of verses in really four ways. So if we quickly go through these verses, here are four things we see Paul talking about. First of all, he notes that Timothy had followed him uh, firsthand. Timothy was a firsthand witness to the persecutions and sufferings that Paul had endured. He was a witness to all of the injustices and inhumane treatment Paul had experienced But secondly, we read in this passage that uh, Timothy witnessed the fact that the apostle Paul thus far had been delivered out of all of them uh, by the handiwork of Christ, his Lord. Christ had delivered him out of all of these problems, all of these sufferings, all of these persecutions thus far. And then uh, we have in verse 12, the apostle giving us a kind of rule of life, uh, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. So he's basically saying the conflict of the world is going to be inevitable. And then fourthly, he's saying that to Timothy, look, Timothy, don't expect the evil people and the imposters to get better or to be part of making the world better. That the work of the evil one, uh, the work of evil in human beings, is going to be continuing. Uh, that is why progress and culture, when progress and culture demonstrates a culture becoming more Christ-like, becoming more Christian, it can be overturned. Uh, it's not necessarily a permanent change. And we need to appreciate that. And I think that's what Paul's point really uh, leads to. So but let's go back and consider what would be the most important, a couple of the larger ideas connected with these four things that Paul mentions. Well, first of all, think about this. Uh, Timothy, uh, the firsthand witness to everything that Paul went through. Timothy was not deterred from following Paul even though Timothy himself was an eyewitness first-hand witness to everything that Paul suffered now this is more evident or the the significance of of Timothy not being deterred by all of this is more significant when we rehearse what Paul himself actually experienced he wrote about this in 2 Corinthians he wrote about this in chapter 11 verses 23 to 27 And I'm just going to read the pertinent parts of that passage of what Paul endured. He he says, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Maximum was 39 lashes. That's what he's talking about. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And then he writes further on in danger from my own people, meaning the Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger from false brothers. That is those who uh, appeared to be Christians, but weren't actually. So what we see here is that Timothy witnessed all of these things firsthand that were going on in Paul's life, what Paul went through, how severe and deadly it all was. But Timothy wasn't deterred. He this did not stop him. From being Paul's constant companion, this did not stop him from following Paul. He saw Paul as that godly role model role model who himself said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And to be a follower of Jesus, we have to think about what Jesus himself endured. To be a follower of Jesus, we have to recognize that Jesus said, if the world hates you, it hated me first. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a follower of the Apostle Paul, we have to recognize that persecution is an inevitability. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to find persecution of some sort. We're going to be involved in this conflict within the world. So Paul had gospel convictions he was willing to die for. Uh, Timothy, likewise, had gospel convictions he was willing to die for. Now, the point of Paul's, what Paul says here in today's context, again, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to be persecuted. Let me just give some background to this. You know, half a century ago when I started college, uh, things were not like this in the American culture. Uh, when I went to the university, uh, you could count on two departments being strongly anti-Christian. In fact, during my freshman year, a freshman friend of mine who is a biology zoology major uh, in her very freshman first freshman biology lecture, big class, probably 300 students in the lecture hall. Uh, the first day as professors introducing the course uh, says this to all the students. Uh, if there are students here who have a kind of a, a biblical view of human life, a biblical view of the world, uh, a biblical view of human origins, would you would you stand? and so my friend and about six others stood up you know that's about all out of this group of 300 and this is what the professor said to him to all of them i'm taking note of you all uh you won't pass my course believing what you believe well an evident public hostility toward anyone who might be a creationist versus being uh, a, a follower of darwin uh, and the background to that was, and I learned this uh, really as a couple years later, there had been some Christian professors in that department there at UCLA who had been creationists. And when other members of the department began to have dialogues with them and conversations about them, that though in their classes they were teaching what they were supposed to be teaching, they privately held those views. Those men were drummed out of the department. They were not yet ten- tenured, but they were basically dismissed from teaching at UCLA. So there was that strong approach. Now, in in the philosophy department, though, something else happened that was uh, really quite different. And I got this from a visiting professor who was a Christian at that time who told me that in the 50s and 60s, uh, UCLA had made its reputation as being one of the staunchest, strongest, atheistic philosophy departments in the United States and then had lost academic credibility. And the reason why it had lost academic credibility from being up there at the very top was – Because they had no one who was competent to teach more than one half of Christian history, or about a half of Christian history. You see, when you look at the entire span of of going back to uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, even the pre-Socratics, all the way through the 20th century, when you look at the whole history of philosophy, there are 1,100 years that are solidly, solidly dominated by Christian thinkers. So you've got Augustine. You've got Anselm. You've got Aquinas, uh, those great men, and others along that. And then you've got Descartes. Uh, then you've got uh, Barclay. And then some of those who were sort of mixtures still held to a Christian theistic viewpoint. In fact, the impact of the Christian view was so powerful that it lasted all the way into the Enlightenment period of time. Uh, the man who's considered the height of the Enlightenment, even Immanuel Kant, had to give place in his system for the existence of God. And they discovered that uh, the more atheistic they were as a department, the less they could find qualified people to actually teach all of that history of philosophy from the medieval coming into the modern period. And so this professor who was a Christian told me, a visiting professor, he said, yeah, there's a couple of professors coming. This will happen in your junior year, and uh, they're going to be teaching all of those classes that need to be taught for the philosophy department to regain its top academic status. So. Uh, Is there hostility? Yeah. But back then, as a philosophy student, uh, I I would receive skepticism from professors. I would get questioned by professors. Uh, But it was all done in what you would call a gentlemanly kind of manner. They would discuss with me. They would dialogue with me. They might even engage, engage in a little bit of debate. But I was never demeaned. I was never put down. Uh, I was never, I never had an argument or an expression of, of contempt or scorn. I was never treated in that classically logical fallacy way of ad hominem. I personally was never attacked. What I thought, what I believed, my ideology, my convictions, they were questioned, even attacked. But as a person, I was never attacked. I was never told I was deplorable because of what I held to and what I believed. That has actually changed. Uh, If you uh, are a a person who is engaged in social media, you know that it has changed. You know we live in a day where there is a huge prejudice against Christian ideas, Christian beliefs, because today's America, in politics, in ethics, uh, in medicine, biology, science, religion, everything has become politicized. Uh, So to hold on to the Christian ethics or the Christian perspective, uh, to still believe in traditional marriage, biblical marriage, to still believe that there are male and females, uh, to believe that sexual conduct is a good gift within the context of marriage, uh, to believe that the human life, the nature of human life, begins at conception, and human beings start to be treated with dignity all the way through from conception to death, uh, to hold on to all of those things, which, not news, that's the 2,000-year-old year story of Christianity, these things can now be labeled as hateful as dangerous, as hurtful to human beings. And in some academic circles, if you're teaching these things to children, you are engaged in child abuse. Now, that's just the nature of the way things are. What surprises me is not that this is so. What surprises me is that Christians are blown away. Christians are shocked. Christians are deeply surprised that it could be this way. And I'm thinking all the signs have been here in our culture and the Bible has told us that this is the nature of the Christian life. We are involved in spiritual warfare, but it's not against the people who stand on behalf of the narrative that stands against the Christian faith. It's not the people. We need to remember that the apostle Paul told us clearly we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the principalities against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, brothers and sisters, please don't forget that when we go on social media and we attack the other side, we have forgotten where the spiritual battle is. Don't attack people who don't agree with you. Our calling is to pray for them. Our calling is to pray for them. And when you present the Christian narrative in all fairness and politeness, and they push back against it, just simply say, um, "If I thought this were simply my opinion, um, then yes, you'd have every right to criticize." But I do believe this faithfully represents what Jesus Christ taught in the Bible. The only place we can go to for the thoughts and thinking of Jesus Christ. Stand with Christ. Don't stand for your own viewpoint. Stand with Christ. And remember, Jesus said, if they hate you as you stand with Christ, they hated him first. Ultimately, it's only a winsome approach to the truth that's ever going to win people's hearts. If you have a rhetoric of domination as opposed to a rhetoric of love, you lose. Christian brothers and sisters, we lose. If we want to ever win people, we have to keep believing that it's our love and concern and care that God will use to win people's hearts to Jesus. Now, continuing on, uh, let's consider what Paul says in verses 14-14. And 15 to Timothy. The conflict is a hard thing, but what gives us confidence? What gives us comfort in the midst of the hard things of the comfort with the world? Well, this is what Paul says to Timothy. But as for you, Timothy, continue. In spite of the fact that there's going to be persecution, you've already seen it. And doubtless Timothy experienced too. You've already seen it. Look, continue. in what you have learned. And have firmly believed knowing from you who you knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, what we're looking at here is the comfort and the confidence of scripture based living. That's what we find when we follow the godly model. We find the comfort and the confidence of living in accordance with the word of God. Now, Timothy uh, is the subject of what Paul's writing about here. Paul is reflective on Timothy's life. All throughout Timothy's life, he had had the experience of being guided and guarded by God-centered people, uh, people who had lived in accordance with the word of God. So in verse 14, uh, the first thing that Paul says is, Timothy, uh, think about uh, from whom you learned this, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now, this could refer to Paul by himself. This could refer to uh, Lois and Eunice, his mother and grand- grandmother, by themselves. It could refer to them both. But the point is this. Uh, Paul himself and his mother and his grandmother gave Timothy his anchor in Scripture. And then it was Paul who took Timothy and developed him further according to the word of God. Now, Paul is saying, Timothy, you know us. You know your mother. You know your grandmother. You know from whom you have learned this. That ought to give you great confidence in what you have believed. Now, you see, in Paul's day, not today, clearly, but in Paul's day, there was still within the Greco-Roman culture the influence of the great orators like Cicero. And Cicero had said that the art of persuasion couples not only the eloquence of the person who speaks, but the virtue and the character of the one who's spoken. That is to say, it's the character that really, really counts. And Paul is saying, Timothy, you know the character of your mom? You know the character of your grandmother. You know my character. You have followed these things. That's why you can have great confidence in what we've taught you. And brothers and sisters, uh, that's what we ought to be looking at today. Uh, It's troubling when sports figures are lionized as role models within our culture. And then you do a little bit of background and we know that domestic violence is rife among NFL football players. Uh, we know that there are basketball players who have come out and said, parents, stop pointing to us as role models. We're not. You should be. So even, even professional sports people who are often lionized and idolized, uh, are, 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 are smart enough to recognize they are not role models. It's a tragedy in our culture today. With all the trouble that's going on when, when, when victims of injustice, which we ought to be concerned about, when their lives are rewritten and lionized as, as virtue, and they're not. Uh, when the police do wrong things, but they're doing wrong things against criminals, it's the injustice that we need to point out. We shouldn't try to lionize the victims because many of those victims, uh, have lived lives that have, if you lionize these perpetrators, then you're victimizing their victims once again. So we've got things out of whack here. We need to come back to what Paul is talking about here. Only lionize as people you want as role models, those whose character is actually deserving of respect. And Paul is saying, look, your mother has that kind of cred. Your grandmother has that kind of cred. And I, the apostle, as I imitate Christ, have that kind of cred so that you can see us as godly role models. You can have confidence in what we've taught you. But Paul goes further. He wants to go on and say, but Timothy, you haven't just accepted our word as reliable as we might be, because our character would give us reasons for you to believe us. You've done something further. You've actually known firsthand in your own life, as it says in verse 15, from the earliest childhood you have known the sacred scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ now the word earliest childhood there uh, that word in the greek actually means infancy you have known from infancy all of your life you have known as you've been taught and then as you have read for yourself all of your life you have known yourself firsthand the sacred scriptures, which are able to lead you to this position. And that's important, because as wonderful as every godly role model might be, in the final analysis, uh, Christ is going to say, I'm concerned about your faith. Not your faith in another man, not your faith in another person, but your faith in me. And though we're encouraged by scripture itself, to look to godly role models, and to follow them because they're following Christ. We also must be wise enough to say, I don't blindly follow anyone. I will only follow those who themselves follow the sacred scriptures. And, of course, the great benefit of the sacred scriptures, as Paul is laying it out for us here, is not because they're going to make you wise unto success in this world. Because that's not a guarantee. There is no guarantee that because you're a Christian businessman, uh, you're going to be, in a business sense and in a worldly sense, the best in the business. Sometimes it has happened. Uh, we know that the founder of Chick-fil-A, uh, we know that his business has been supremely blessed. But worldly success is ephemeral. Worldly success is, is not something that uh, you should hold on to as your eternal guarantee. What Paul is saying here is, Timothy, you've known those scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation in Christ. They have been good for you and necessary for you to live this life. But the trajectory of scripture, the goal of scripture, the very purpose of scripture is to make you wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ. The scriptures given to us to prepare us in this life, for the life to come. And that's ultimately the comfort and confidence we have with respect to Scripture. Because Paul has placed this in the context of writing from prison, where Christ has delivered him from every other kind of persecution. Paul now writes with a certain foreknowledge that this imprisonment is going to end in his death. He speaks about his death. He talks about his departure being soon. This is why he's asking Timothy to come from Ephesus to Rome to see him one last time, even to bring some things that, that Paul thinks he's going to need before he dies. It's all in light of the reality that death is going to come, and it's going to come at the end of persecution. It's the reality of what it is to live in this world. And Timothy scriptures made you wise far beyond all of the exigency and circumstances and civilian affairs and business of this life scriptures have made you wise under who christ is salvation in him that has benefits for this life but absolute guarantees for the life to come an eternal place with god in his household forever persecution i want to end with a couple of stories here Really, they're two stories pulled together that really remind us of a couple of things. Living for Christ can lead to early death. But don't trust the culture, no matter how Christianized that culture might be, to ever remain that way. This is a story out of the 17th century Scotland. Uh, the year is 1685. Uh, it's only 20 years past the time, uh, really, of uh, the, the Scots' uh winning a kind of semi-independence from England. Uh, they have someone sitting upon uh, who's the King of Scotland now and they have declared themselves and made themselves to be a thoroughly Protestant nation. They are living under the Westminster Confession of Faith as the confession of the church. The entire church in Scotland is Presbyterian. but when this king comes to power, this king does something that the Scots had present prevented beforehand. this King said, like the King of England, I am going to be head of the church as well as the head of the realm. So in me is vested the power politically and ecclesiastically. Now, the fact is, in this very Christianized country this time, most Presbyterian ministers gave in and broke that principle that had been there at the time of the Reformation and which the Presbyterians and other dissenters had fought so hard for uh, 30 to 40 years earlier, 50 years earlier. And, and they, they submitted. There were another group of Presbyterians who were called Covenanters. And these Covenanters basically said, only Jesus Christ has those crown rights over the church. We will not acknowledge that the king is head over the church. Well, uh, as it turned out, that became a law that caused the covenanters to be persecuted uh, by the governmental powers of, of, of basically the, the, the government of Scotland and the king at that time. During these times, uh, a quarter of a million covenanters were hunted down and put to death by their fellow Presbyterians, because everybody in the kingdom was Presbyterian. Uh, Everybody went to churches that were Presbyterian. They were hunted down, captured, persecuted, and a quarter, more than a quarter of a million were put to death. So this is a story about two ladies named Margaret, Uh, the oldest, 70 years old. She was a widow and the king's forces came upon her while she was in prayer. And they arrested her because they knew that she was a covenanter and she had already made it clear that she was not going to submit to the edict, essentially a bowing the the knee to the king as king over the church. They arrested her. Then they arrested a second woman named Margaret. She was 18 years old, unmarried. And they basically told her, we want you to drink a toast to the king as king over the entire realm, political and ecclesiastical, and she refused. So they were arrested in April, and uh, the day of execution was set for the month of May. And they took them to the shores of Scotland, where they had this long, long tide. They tied the elder Margaret to a stake and put her out at low tide, where she was the first when the tides came in to drown her. Historical record indicates that she apparently swooned before the waters came. And that may have been a very merciful death. But the rest of the the dragoons standing around the younger Margaret were basically saying to her, all you have to do is recant and we will untie you and free you. Why need you perish as that old lady perished? Why need you perished? The younger Margaret was standing was actually tied to the stake. And I just want to read to you what she had to say in response to what was being uh, said to her. So so, so this, I'm breaking in on the story here. The younger Margaret watched her die. The executioners used this to taunt and bait the younger Margaret and offered her a chance to swear allegiance to the king. Instead, she began to sing from Psalm 25, verse 7. Rendered into verse, she said, My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. After thy mercy, think on me, for thy goodness is great. God, good and upright, is the way he'll show sinners, the way he'll sinners show, the meek and judgment he will guide and make his path to know. And then having her Bible with her, she began to read from the last section of Romans chapter 8. For we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And though her executioners continue to taunt her further and try to coerce her to say oaths to the king, this young lass of 18 years remained faithful to the Lord and the Savior until the end. So, so that like the martyrs described in the book of Hebrews, though tortured, she did not accept her release so that she might obtain a better resurrection. Brothers and sisters, if you don't have principles you're willing to die for. You won't have convictions to live by. Jesus bids us follow him to deny ourselves, to take up the cross and follow him. He's given us the Apostle Paul as a godly model to follow. He's given us Timothy, who followed the Apostle Paul. There are so many great people in the history of the church who, for the sake of Jesus Christ, did what Luther said in his great hymn. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Remember, brothers and sisters, why you are who you are. It is to live for the sake of the one who died for you. It is to live to the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Father and God, may your word inscribe your words upon our heart that we would live for your son, that we would love human beings, our neighbors and those who don't know you, that we would seek to be peacemakers in a world that's broken with strife and conflict, that we would love your kingdom above the politics of the world, that we might faithfully follow you.